the text for this morning comes from the last half of Acts chapter 17. Um, of all the sermons and speeches of Paul that we have in the book of Acts and then even through his own writings uh, in the epistles, this is probably my, my favorite. And what draws me to this text is not so much the content, which is excellent, but how Paul develops his message. How does he say and the choices he's, he makes about how he wants to make his point? Uh, he, he's on a second missionary journey, what we call his second missionary journey. Uh, he's already been to various preaching points. He just recently is coming from Berea, where you have individuals who hear what he says and then evaluates and compares what he's saying to Scripture to make sure it's still on track. Um, he typically, when he enters into a city, he goes to the synagogue and then in the marketplace. So he's preaching to Jews or God-fearers, and then he's preaching where the common people hang out. Uh, it would be like the malls or the plazas of our day. But when he gets to Athens, he goes to a third area, an area where he hasn't been. Uh, he goes to the academy, as it were. He speaks to the intellectuals and the philosophers of his day. And in this city of Athens, he finds himself immersed in what was and continues to be one of the most important cities in terms of philosophy and intellect and example. By the time Paul gets there, Athens had lost a lot of the grandeur of its earlier days, but it was still home and still boasted as home for Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and then the architecture. Uh, you can still walk up and down the uh, streets of Athens and be amazed. Uh, rising above the city, you have the Acropolis, which literally means city on a hill. And, uh, and, and there you have the Pantheon, which is the temple to the goddess Athena, who was the patron saint of the city of Athens, built in 447 BC. And it's still that Acropolis and, and the Pantheon, even today in the ruins that it's in, is still one of the most stunning shots that you'll see. And, and when Catherine and I were there two years ago, it was just uh, 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 amazing to walk in and around those ruins. But what impressed Paul was not so much the architecture and not so much the history. What struck him when he got there was the quantity of statues to different gods and goddesses that just literally filled the city. Uh, th there was an ancient quote that said there's more idols in Athens than there are gods and goddesses in the ancient world. He speaks, and, and, and I'm explaining this because when we read the text, it might be a little bit confusing, but um, in, in most of our modern or even uh, uh, older translations, you're going to read about the Areopagus, right? Well, that was a huge stone outcropping that the Acropolis sits there. You have the Areopagus and then down below the Agora or the marketplace. Well, the Areopagus is this, it's called the, that, that means uh, the Hill of Ares, which is the Greek name for the Roman god Mars. 
which is how we get the name Mars Hill. If you look through most of your Bibles, you'll never find Mars Hill, but everybody knows that Paul spoke on Mars Hill or at Mars Hill. Well, this is the Areopagus. That's a translation of Mars Hill. But it refers to the place, but it also refers to the ruling council that met on top of that rock. I don't know how they got up there in the old days, but when we climbed up it, there's a very, very steep ladder with ropes and, uh, and supports that you have to climb up. And, uh, and so we stood there, and there's a plaque uh, in honor of the Apostle Paul uh, uh, and this particular speech that we're going to read uh, in, in just a second. So I'm going to read from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 and following, and then uh, we'll, we'll think through the text uh, in the time we have remaining. While Paul was waiting for his co-workers in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square, the Agora, to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler, literally seed picker, like just a guy that picks up random ideas, What's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods, plural. Now, that might seem strange because he's just talking about Jesus, right? Well, the Greek word for resurrection is anastasis. And so as Paul preached about Jesus and anastasis, they interpreted that he was talking about the male god Jesus and the female god, Anastasis. And these were the foreign gods that Paul was preaching about. So then they took him to the high council, the Areopagus, the city. Come, tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained, writes Luke, that all Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows, and here is his speech. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way, for as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God, whom you worship without knowing, is the one that I am telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in man-made temples, and human hands can't serve his needs, he has everything he needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole world. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose for the nations, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel or grope their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, or the older translations have our very being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's and your, speaking about the Athenians, ignorance about these things in earlier times. 
But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judgment for the world with justice by the man he has appointed from and who he appointed and he proved to everyone uh, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. He was speaking about Jesus, obviously. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, member of the council, of this ruling council, the Areopagus, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. Uh, Russell Conwell, uh, you might know that name, uh, gave a wonderful speech back in the earlier part of the century, uh, well, in the early 1900s, and um, it was called Acres of Diamond. And in it, he shared a story that he had picked up on one of his travels to to India. Uh, But in it, he included the story of a young man that he was aware of. If you've never read or heard, you can go to YouTube and they will actually, there's a recording of someone reading this speech. He, He tells the story of this young boy he knew in Massachusetts who went to Yale to become a mining engineer. Brilliant student. And during his senior year, he was paid $15 a week as an assistant in this department of his studies. When he graduated, they offered him $45 a week if he stayed and kept on working at Yale College at that time. But he had gotten gold fever, and he felt like he wanted to move out west and become wealthy. So he persuaded his widowed mom to sell the family farm in Massachusetts and go west in search of gold. Never found it. And the last that Conwell knew as he's sharing this in his speech, the last that Conwell knew, he was working uh, uh, for about $15 an hour in some copper mining company. Well, not long after, the new owner of his farm in Massachusetts was harvesting the potatoes that just kind of lay near the ground up north, a lot of root vegetables. And as he was carrying a bushel, a bushel of potatoes near the narrow entrance, he set it down and saw something glimmer out of the corner of his eye. And he went over and what he thought was a shiny stone turned out to be a chunk of silver that was worth more than $100,000. The young man had walked past that chunk of silver probably all of his life. And he abandoned what he had in hopes for something that he never found. And it was there all along. I I think that Paul is saying something similar to the Athenians. He's saying, you guys are looking for God and you're trying to find him through all these different idols and these manifestations of, of, of the, of divinity. And he's actually a whole lot closer than you think. And he's a whole lot easier to find than you might think. You know, Paul had seen when he was walking through the city this, uh, um, this monument to the unknown God. Uh, they were so dedicated to making sure that they were jotting their 
uh, uh, dotting their I's and, and, and jotting their T's that, that they wanted to cover all their bases to try and build a relationship with deity. And Paul says, you're off track. Let me guide you to what you're really looking for. Yeah, how would you respond to a city filled with rampant idolatry? I mean, Paul knew how the Old Testament prophets would respond. Fire and brimstone, hellfire and damnation. How in the world could you and just blast them? But, but, but Paul doesn't do that. And I think this is extremely instructive, at least for me, and I think it is for all of us. He was filled with sympathy for the people of Athens. Much like Jesus, as he looked over the city of Jerusalem, said, Jerusalem, how I would love to gather you under my wings and take care of you, but you won't let me. Paul looks out at the leaders of, of the city of Athens and says, I just want you to find what's right. And I wish that you could. And it's not that hard. But they didn't have the opportunities that he had. Jesus hadn't showed up on a road to Damascus. Jesus hadn't revealed himself to them. They hadn't heard all about the, the, the parables and the wisdom and the teachings of Jesus. And so Paul, trying to, what the modern term is, contextualize this message and make it relevant Rather than harshness, he responds with courtesy and kindness. He, he doesn't demand that they understand everything that he knows. He gives them the benefit of the doubt and pictures them as earnest seekers who are trying to figure it out. And he gives them the benefit of the doubt and says, you know, we, we all mess up. We all try and find love in the wrong places. Let me help you out and lead you to what is the right truth about God. You've looked everywhere and you haven't found him, but he's nearer than you think. You might know the name Phillips, Brook, uh, Phillips Brooks. Uh, we Think about him every year when we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. He's the author of that song. Uh, he was also the person that introduced Helen Keller to Christianity. And so when he writes about this text in Acts 17, it's particularly poignant. He says, it's as if Paul had entered a room where a blind child sat. And held the child in his arms and stroked its hair and said, don't be afraid, my child. Your father is here. You can't see him, but he is here nonetheless. He breathes in this very room with you. He, he loves you and wants to take care of you. And you don't have to worry anymore. He is right here. And, and that's the tone that we get from Paul as he's addressing these Athenians of folks that are trying but just haven't been able to find their way. And in another attempt to try and connect with them, he, he doesn't quote Old Testament scriptures. Paul knows them by heart. He quotes two Greek poets. For in him we live and move and have our being. That was from Epimenides. And then 
we are his offspring. And that comes from the Greek poet Aratus. And he's finding ways to make connection. But then he does point out that all of these attempts to find God aren't successful because that's not where you go to find God. You're not going to find God in a Greek temple. You're not going to find him in a statue. You're not going to find him in many of the places the Athenians were looking for him. You're going to find him by looking through Jesus. And so he calls them to follow and to understand the living God who lives through the resurrected Jesus. The worship of idols just doesn't cut it and requires repentance. You know, it's it's interesting that on the one hand, we're eons away from ancient Athens. But on the other hand, we're just like right there. We, too, are a golden culture. I mean, we're sending we're not sending them, but they are choosing to send themselves. CEOs and multi-billionaires are choosing to fly to space. Could we have ever imagined that people would be doing that in our day and time? These aren't NASA astronauts. They're not military uh, airmen or airwomen. These guys are just guys like you and me who happen to fall on a great idea, and now they're filthy, stinking rich, and they're going to take a ride on a rocket ship. (laughs) Who could have imagined? We're not that far away from Athens. Long before M. Night Shamalaya, the the Y in his name always throws me off. Uh, um, Before he started writing like the horror stuff for the adults, uh, he he wrote a couple uh, uh, stories and made them into movies for families. In 1998, he wrote one called Wide Awake. It was about a Catholic schoolboy's search for God. Uh, The boy Joshua wanted to find out whether his grandfather, who had passed away, was doing okay. So he's having a conversation with his friend David. They're sitting in a chair in the garage, and Joshua says, You know what, Dave? I'm going on a mission, a real mission. Dave says, Well, what kind of mission? What are you looking for? He says, God. God? What for? Josh says, I just want to talk to him. Well, why? To make sure my granddad is okay. Dave thinks for a minute and says, remember when you told me I was stupid for staring at that bug lamp on my porch for for six hours, hoping that the purple light would have gamma rays and turn me into the Incredible Hulk so I could fight crime? Well, your mission is way more stupid than that. (laughs) And Josh says, well, why? And Dave says, because you can't look for God. Well, why not? Where in the world are you going to look? Well, M. Knight was raised in India, and I think he's reflecting what a lot of people today feel like. Where do you go to find God? Where can you go? And I think what we see is that our life, filled with all of the idols of our modern time, 
pleasure, drugs, alcohol, work, money, sports, beauty, you name it. All of those things are seeking to satisfy this God-shaped longing we have in our hearts. And like the Athenians, we are looking for God. But we're not looking in the right place. Paul reminds us, he is not far from us. He is here. Makes me think of when Jacob had that dream in, in Genesis chapter 28. And, and he dreamed of angels ascending and descending the staircase or the stairway to heaven. And he wakes up and he says, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. So as we go through our life and our struggles and as we go from emergency rooms to chemotherapies to rehab as we deal with financial turmoil and insecurities, and as we deal with jobs and bosses and co-workers that drive us crazy, and as we deal with all of the things of this world, and we ask, where is God? I think the answer is what Paul tells us. He's a whole lot closer than we think. Uh, he's in that room. He's with you on your job. He's in the middle of that marriage and all the conflicts that you're having. He knows the challenges that you're having with your kids or your parents or your family. We don't have to look way off to find God. He's as close as your brother or sister. His presence will not magically make all the problems disappear. But we will never, ever go through any challenge <clears throat> alone. And the, the, the responses to Paul's message are the same that we would have today. Some laughed. Some said, yeah, maybe later. And others said, I'm all in. This Dionysius is later said to have become the bishop of Athens. And from him came a long line of Christian leaders in the following century. So I guess I would say with Paul, whatever your struggle, whatever your situation, whatever it is that we're looking to to provide stability in our life, We'll find it in God. We'll find it in the message of a resurrected Jesus. And he's not that far from any of us.